Hello, this is the 14th episode of the Coffee and Pens podcast. This time my guest is Andrew Warner from Mixergy and Stop Asking Questions. Let's start with a short confession. I reached out to Andrew months ago via Ben Patano, I think. We made an initial connection, but then silence. I kind of thought he was a dick and scrapped him on my list. I was definitely too judgmental way too early. Because in September, someone else suggested I interview him and I reached out again. You know what? Turns out he was just busy or maybe not feeling too well about writing a book and everything. Stupid me, right? Anyway, we set a reminder for December because he was busy at the time. And December came, we fixed a date for Jan. The date came and he had to cancel. Can you believe it? But fortunately, we could find a good time the following day. And the conversation that you're about to hear is the one we had on that January day. It's about podcasting. The struggle of writing a book, hot beverages, and some more. Enjoy. Hello, Andrew. Thank you for joining me on the Coffee and Pens podcast. Let's talk a little bit about stop asking questions. Um, the first thing I noticed is that you lived in Argentina for a while. Yeah, uh, the best part for me about Argentina related to what we're talking about here is that I was able to focus. You know what? Day-to-day life has all these freaking distractions. Like we moved to Texas. I need to get a license plate on my car. And that means going to the DMV and getting a temporary license. Then you come back and you have to get a regular license. And turns out that the license plate wasn't ready or we weren't ready to get it. It's like, that's one little everyday chore of life that I have to go through because we're living here uh, at home in the US. When we went to Argentina, everything was so much simpler. I could just live in a house, go to the office, work, have no distractions. All my usual habits were Mm -hmm. gone. All my usual obligations were gone. Things were less expensive. So I was able to take a taxi instead of drive a car and I could focus on what mattered. And at the time, what mattered to me was doing these interviews. And so I could just sit in the office and figure out the recording equipment, figure out who to interview. And there's nothing like it. I, I would love to be able to do that every few years. It's a little harder now with kids, but I'd love to be able to do that, to just go and say, I'm going to disconnect from all my regular human obligations and focus on the thing that really matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I lived in Bolivia for three years, Peru for one year, and it's so relatable. So there's no distractions, like you just said, not having to do all these tasks you know like i yeah. talked with david canavy about this as well he lives in colombia yeah. yeah and he just said the same thing it's it's all these things that you need to do and over here it doesn't matter it's a it's a huge help it's a huge help i think that um i wanted to move out of my parents house so i wouldn't look like a loser but i stuck around for a little bit longer just so i can start my company and that really helped me because this was back before before mixergy before the interviewing Mm-hmm. because there were there was very little that I had to do. I could just get up every day and focus on this business that I was trying to create. And frankly, I didn't have to make food. My mom made food for me. That's a really nice situation to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even have to do laundry. I was in my 20s and my mom still did my laundry for me. And it sounds like being babied, but you know what? I'll take it. I just want to be able to focus on the things that matter. And anytime that I can get to do that, it's a gift. Yeah. Is coffee something that matters to you? I'm drinking coffee right now. I'm kind of obsessive with it. Can I tell you, I know this is a little just like this. We're going to take a little uh, side uh, journey here. Yeah, go for it. We drove to Denver to go spend a month or so for winter break. And on my drive over, I couldn't get good coffee. And I started fantasizing about this like camping setup, something called jet boil where you could boil water in under a minute and a half. I've seen YouTube videos of people Mm -hmm. boiling water in under a minute and a half. It comes with a French press, so you could do French press coffee and all that. And as I was driving, I said, we go on a lot of excursions as a family. I hate that I have to get junky coffee or no coffee. And sometimes I want tea. And in Texas and Denver, they often don't even have tea bags, just basic tea. And so I talked to my wife about this, I guess, endlessly. And she finally got me a jet boil as a gift. And now I keep it in the car. I can make my own coffee my way or my tea my way anywhere I am. I love it. I'm kind of obsessive about it. Awesome. 
And I know you don't like these questions from your book, and I fully agree. But is there any favorite coffee that you have? <laughs> because in the book I said asking for favorites is a is a problem. Yeah. You know, in this case, I actually do have a clear favorite. And the clear favorite is Phil's coffee in San Francisco. When we got there, I thought it's such a weird thing. Phil's with a Z. It just doesn't look interesting. They force you to have pour over coffee, which takes forever. They force mm. you to order in a certain way, which takes forever. Um, but I really do like their coffee. It is phenomenal. And there's a reason why a lot of people in San Francisco will just gravitate towards their coffee, even though it's not well known outside of the city. All right. And it's yeah. not the, like the premium coffee. It's just, they're kind of fussy. They only mm -hmm. will do pour over coffee. They will not give you a latte, for example, but it's, it's damn good. Yeah, well, when you focus a lot on just the one thing very well, it's often yeah. better than trying to cater to everyone. All right, over to the book. Why did you decide to write Stop Asking Questions? You know, I've wanted to write a book ever since I started doing interviews. So we're talking about like 14 years of interviews. For much of that time, I said I wanted to write a book and I just couldn't. My idea was to sum up what I learned in my interviews in book form and just wasn't working. It wasn't working. It wasn't working. And then a friend asked me, would you write a chapter for my book? And since we were in COVID lockdown and I was at a period in my life where I was willing to say yes to anything, I said, yes. And I wrote the chapter and he said, actually, that's not what I'm looking for write a different one. And so different one. And then he gave me feedback on it. And it was fun to get his feedback. I didn't agree with all of it. Um, but I liked that there was someone who could give me some guidance, someone who could have a strong opinion, who could take like my free work and at the same time say, No, I don't want that. I want this. And I said to him after that experience, I want to do more. How have you been writing all these books? And he said, um, he said, I, he got some help from someone and I said, introduce me. And one of the things that I've discovered about myself over the years is that I don't work well in isolation. I work really well when there's someone else expecting something from me. And with my first company, the online greeting card company, I was so freaking slow until I hired a writer to, to do some of our writing. And then she needed me to get some work done for her. And so I would not just waste time. I would not beat myself up for not knowing enough. I would just sit and do the work. And that was incredibly helpful. And so I said, I need an, an editor or someone. I don't know the position. And he helped me find someone who every week got on a call with me, checked in to see what I was doing, gave me a plan for what to do for the following week. When I got stuck and didn't get anything done, she would help me forgive myself and say, Andrew, she was an editor of Penguin. Her name is Mary Sun. She said, every, every writer we've worked with has this type of problem. It's okay, Andrew. It's a week of nothing, but we're going to get back on track. And sometimes when I would try to push, 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 she'd say, Andrew, I think you need a week of nothing. Don't keep pushing. And so I wouldn't push. And sometimes I wouldn't know what to write. And she'd say, Andrew, Go in and ask your community, ask the people who you want to read this book where, what they're struggling with. And if you go back in my Twitter timeline, you'll see a tweet saying, does anyone need help with their podcast? And I got a flood of people saying yes, or an email going out to my list asking, does anyone want some advice on how to lead better conversations? And that all came from her saying, go and help other people to see their problems and then come back and write about how you solve them. And that was incredibly helpful. And so the reason I started writing it is because I always wanted to write a book. The topic came up because I wanted to sum up what I learned through interviewing over the years. And the only reason I was able to get it done is because I worked with an editor on a weekly basis to push me, to guide me, to check in with me. There's so many things I would love to follow up with, but let's go with this. 14 years of interviews and then you decided, well, then you wrote the book. How far were you in when you decided that you wanted to write this book? Once I got started, I, I was committed. Once I worked with Mary, the editor, I think I might've even had a few chapters to show her mm -hmm. um, what I wanted to do. I was committed. Now, at the time, originally, the idea for the book was, how do you have better 
conversations on Zoom or any remote app because I loved it. When I finish this conversation with you, I'm going to feel energized for it. Kind of the way that I feel energized when I have scotch with friends or even meet strangers and have a beer with them. It's it's not because I'm a naturally extroverted person. It's because I learned how to have good conversations over mm-hmm. the years. It's because I learned through going to Dale Carnegie, the author of How to Win Friends and Influence People. I worked for his company. I learned from them how to have better conversations. I practiced. And so when I'm having conversations with people over a beer, it's because I know how to guide it in a way that makes sense and is fun for me and how to be present and go with where people are going in a way that makes me feel comfortable and excited. Same thing with interviews. I do these Zoom conversations and get excited. Meanwhile, I watched over Zoom how many people had switched their conversations to Zoom from business meetings in person, Mm -hmm. and they were so drained. And I wanted to say to them, it doesn't have to be draining. It could be exciting. It should be exciting. And in many ways, it's better than the in-person conversations that you glorified because you can't have them Mm -hmm. now. And I wanted to write a book about how I do that. And as I started, that was what the book was going to be about. But at some point I got stuck. I got stuck because all of my references related to interviews and all of the work that I'd done related to interviews and the best kind of conversations I had were interviews because then I could say in this next hour, I want to learn this one thing and go deep with the person I care about to learn the thing that I'm curious about. And we started to realize that the book just naturally kept going back to interviewing. And I thought, well, this is where I have the best strength. This is where it's most authentic. This is where I have the most experience. It's not going to help those people who I see suffering through Zoom, but it is going to help other people who are like me, who want to have deep conversations and learn from people they admire. And I'm good with that. And so we adjusted. And that's another benefit of working with a good editor who can guide me that way. And at what stage did you decide to work with Ben? I worked with Ben Patamo of Damn Gravity around the time that I was finished or finishing editing. He emailed me or direct messaged me or something. And he said, Andrew, if you write a book, and I didn't even talk publicly about writing a book. After years of saying I want to write a book, I said, I'm not going to talk this time. I'm going to work with I'm going to talk internally, but not publicly. And so he didn't know I was doing it, but he said, Andrew, you should write a book because, and then he gave me a list of all the benefits. And I said, how do you know? And he said, I've got a publishing company. And I said, but you haven't published anyone yet. And I love that he kept coming back and saying, no, I didn't, but I did publish a book before. I am working on my book. Here's how I'm doing it in public. Here's the way I'm getting insights from my audience. And he showed me like, his audience gave him feedback on the cover and they were engaged in the cover. And because they were engaged in the cover, they were looking forward to the book. The cover design was better because of it. And mm-hmm. he didn't pick the cover that they wanted. So he said, look, you don't have to go with mob rule. He said, I'm going to explain to them why. And he actually did explain to his followers why he didn't pick the cover that they wanted. No hurt feelings, no nothing. But he also wasn't discarding their opinion. He was using it, guiding uh, his decision with it, but not being bossed around by their decision. And I liked how engaging it was. And I said, I can work with a publisher that's going to put me in through their non-process process and forget about me. Or I can work with Ben, who's going to be kind of obsessive because mm-hmm. I'm going to be a, a good use case, a good first case study for him. And I could work with an established company or I can work with a startup. And my vision had always been to work with startups. That's, that's what Mixergy, the interviews that I've done were about helping startups build better companies. That's why he discovered my podcast. And I thought this feels more authentic. Somebody who's scrappy, who's willing to be there um, and go the extra mile and come up with new ideas and not count on me just being grateful for being part of the process, but be active with me in mm-hmm. the process. He was. He helped me pick a cover with the audience's feedback and we engaged them. He created an email list just for the book so we can tell people about it. He started creating a Twitter campaign for me, leading it, writing the tweets, thinking about a new direction that frankly I disagreed with. And then I saw the results and I realized why he was right. And so that's why I worked with Ben and I'm, I'm glad I did. Yeah, you, you mentioned to me earlier that Ben actually kind of revived your Twitter account. Yes. Do you think that was an important um, aspect of the entire like book publishing campaign? I think it helped. I think 
I'd been using Twitter for years since basically when they launched. And for me, Twitter was more about just talking to the people in my world. It was like a big cocktail party where the people who I interviewed would be there, the people who I'd worked with would be there, the people who I met in San Francisco and moved out of San Francisco would be there. And that was a way for me to communicate and talk to them. It was like, like a giant iMessage group. What Ben wanted me to do was use it more for promoting the ideas in the book. And I was resistant because I'm not just an interviewer. Interviewing is a means to an end for me. But he was right that there were a lot of people who wanted to know how I was interviewing, what was guiding my interviews. They wanted to do their own interviews and they wanted to see that aspect of me. And where I might give it 10% of my time, and truthfully, I was giving it maybe 1% of my time before, I might've been willing to go to 10. He wanted to take me to 50% or 75%. And that was a big stretch for me. The upside was that he got a lot of engagement around it. He showed me that people really cared about this and it helped sell the book. It helped get more people interested in the topic of the book. It helped, it helped me see that I, I had credibility and experience and knowledge here that was useful, that was wanted. And so I, I embraced it. I think I would probably scale back my, my Twitter efforts and talk more about the other stuff in my life, but it's hard to when what he's guiding me to, what he's doing is just so much stronger. In a way, I think the audience for this book is completely different from your Mixergy audience and from the people you talk with on a day-to-day basis. So how did you deal with this difference? I don't know that it is different anymore. When I started out, I remember interviewing Tim Ferriss and thinking, well, this whole podcast thing is so weird for someone like Tim. He wasn't into listening to podcasts, I don't think. The whole experience was a little weird, I thought. And I thought that it was, I know for sure the first interview I did with him, he wasn't taking it seriously. Then he created his own podcast and now it's the main part of his business, the podcast. And you could say, all right, Tim's an author. It makes sense for authors, but I'm seeing more and more entrepreneurs getting into interview podcasts. And there's a reason for it. It's the same reason why a lot of entrepreneurs that you admire are on Twitter and not on Facebook or Instagram. There's something about the interview process that engages them intellectually and engages their audience intellectually. You know, taking photos and putting it on Instagram is fun for building an audience, but it's not an intellectually stimulating experience like tweeting something out that might be a little controversial to see how people handle it and to see how they beat back your idea and what new ideas come out of it or reading other people's ideas. How many people do I talk to who are now reading Bology because they want to know what he has to say about the future of money, the future of crypto, the future of everything, right? It's That's where they are because that's where the intellectuals least stimulating uh, experiences. Same thing for interviewing. And so in the beginning, yeah, absolutely. Podcasting and entrepreneurship, two separate things. Today, the most intelligent entrepreneurs are doing some kind of podcast conversation. Yeah, that's that's a very good consideration. And I can now remember a few very popular names of entrepreneurs that started a podcast. Let me give you one who's not, let me give you one who's not pop. Mark Randolph, the real founder of Netflix, along with Reed Hastings, who was an originally an investor and then took on the CEO role, he became incredibly wealthy from Netflix, right? He, be, he doesn't need the attention of a podcast. But what he found himself doing was he doesn't even need to do interviews to learn from people. He's got a wealth of experience through investing and starting multiple products, multiple businesses. I asked him when he, when he came on my podcast, why do you even want to be on my podcast? He says, I need, I want to expose my ideas and my own podcast to your audience. I said, you've got a podcast. He goes, yes. So what's your podcast about? His podcast is called that will never work. It's not him interviewing other people. It's the one-on-one conversations that he has with entrepreneurs that he invests in, that he mentors, that he guides that he says, they're so stimulating that recording can only make them better by exposing them to a bigger audience. So you're looking at someone who's not a media whore like some people are in the world of social media. He's not someone who needs this in order to kick off his company. He's someone who is just 
driven by the intellectually stimulating aspect of conversation and understands it when it's recorded and exposed to more people, the benefits magnify. And that is another example. And I got tons of them, but you were going to say something else. And I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt it, but I do want to make sure to make that point. Entrepreneurship and intellectual curiosity of all kinds are now going hand in hand with interviews, which is why so many people are picking up my book today. And if I'd written it five years ago, 10 years ago, that wouldn't have been true. And damn it, if I would have written it 20 years ago, when no one had the ability to, to interview publicly, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Now, what I wanted to say is, so you've got these people that really want to add value, that feel that they have something to say and that do it because of this intellectual interest. Like they're doing it in a way for themselves and they know that it's going to help their audience. But then I feel there are many businesses as well that, that are starting a podcast because they feel they have to start a podcast. Okay, that's fine. I think that there's absolutely businesses who are saying we need to have a podcast today. And I'll give you an example of a business that benefits from it. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give you my own, me as, an, as, a, as a use case. I couldn't bike ride outside because bike riding outside takes me an hour or two. And I, when I had my first son, I couldn't give up an hour or two of my day away from the house in addition to going to work. And so I was looking for an indoor trainer, you know, something you could attach your bike to so you can do a bike ride. I came across this thing called Zwift, which is kind of weird, but the, the way it works is if you get a smart trainer with Bluetooth in it, when you connect your bike and pedal on your bike, this character in a virtual world that you see on your iPad, iPhone, or laptop moves through a virtual world. And so I love cycling because I love going and looking around. Same thing happens to me. I'm cycling through Zwift and I get to see around, but it's such a weird thing. I wasn't sure where to go and what to do with it. And sure, I could look at YouTube videos for it, but I wasn't a YouTuber who's going to go looking at YouTube videos to understand this. I happen to, when I'm riding or walking to work or doing whatever, listen to podcasts, showering. And so I was listening to Zwift podcasts. Now, this thing that sounds so weird became less weird as I heard other people doing it, as I heard them explain that if you really want to challenge yourself, you can go to the top of this virtual mountain. And if you ride far enough, then you get this special bike. And I thought, well... I do want to challenge myself. So virtual mountain makes sense. I do like the idea of getting a special bike just as a goal for the sake of having a goal. Great. And so I became not just a paid Zwift customer. I became a Zwift user on a daily basis, maybe, and an evangelist of it because I got so excited about it. All because Zwift put money into a podcast that I then was able to listen to. And so we are seeing that happen more and more. There are some people for sure who, if they're using Notion, like to figure out how to use that database notepad type app on their own. But most people want to go and get some feedback and community experience around it. And for some, that means YouTube. For others, that means blogs. For others still, it means hiring someone. And then for some subset of people, it means listening to a podcast when they're showering, when they're running, when they're working out, when they're going on their commute to work. That is where the audience for podcasting sometimes is. And I think that every business should recognize that audience exists and uh and be there be there for sure thanks for sharing this story it's really interesting i just wonder this is a very niche podcast how did you discover this you know what i don't even know that's a really good question i don't know what it might have been was they might have told me if you have any questions and in fact i think that is what it is i couldn't connect it so they said andrew we understand it's difficult this guy who goes by GP Llama on YouTube, made a video about how to do it. So I watched a seven minute video. I bought what he said and I was able to connect and, and get this virtual experience. Then I said, I have more questions. They said, why don't you join our Facebook group? Freaking, I hate joining Facebook group. I don't need to chit chat with people just so I could understand and learn something. It seems like such an inefficient use of my time. And then I'm in the Facebook world which draws me into other nonsense. But I saw that someone posted that there's a new episode of the Zwift cast up. And I said, ooh. I do like podcasts. And so I signed up for their podcast. I started listening and being a part of that. And, and I, don't, I hardly ever go into the group. In fact, it's been years, I think, since I've gone into the Facebook group. Okay, right. Let's change the topic a little bit and talk about, about writing and podcasting. And especially, I want to kind of see how you feel about the difference between the two. So one of the things that you mentioned a couple of times in Stop Asking Questions is that you do not or almost not edit your interviews. And then you need to start 
then you need to write a book or then you want to write a book and you need to start editing. How does that difference feel? Uh, very good. I, I enjoy the editing process so much. I enjoyed minimizing it. And I think partially because with the Mixergy interviews, I leave the whole thing out there. There's a part of me that craves editing. And the only reason that I don't do it in, in Mixergy interviews is because once I open myself up to editing, my interviewees are such commanding, bossy people, many of them, that they will never let me stop editing them. They might start with, but I said that I didn't want to reveal my revenue and now I revealed it. Legitimate, fine, maybe we edit that. But they'll move instantly to, but Andrew, we didn't announce the funding or we don't like that we the way I talked about the investor, I wasn't glorifying, or I talked about the investor nicely, but then I didn't talk about my other investors. Can you please remove that part? And then they go to the ums and ahs. And before you know it, you end up with this very... Um, I, just very overly polished interview experience, which a lot of people have, which unfortunately misses much of what really matters. A lot of what we, we get out of interviewing is the part of the person that they're not comfortable exposing themselves, but that is the best part of them. And I think that that's important. You know what, I'll, I'll give you an example. I think it's hard to visualize it when it comes to an interview. I'll give you an example that's more visual. Um, when I did these uh, seven marathons on seven continents in one year was my goal. And I was interviewing entrepreneurs on every continent. My friend, Devin Meadows came with me. He's an incredible video editor and, and videographer. And when I finished watching one of the videos that he took of, I think it was the Mexico marathon that I did. There was this period where I didn't even realize that he recorded as we were looking for a SIM card in Mexico and I was singing like a song and adding the word, looking for a SIM card into it, that to me, I would have felt so dorky for singing about a SIM card, for singing in general and having it on camera. He knew that that little touch of humanity added flavor, color, a sense of my personality that I don't recognize. And if I do recognize it, I don't want anyone to know about it, but it's a human thing to do that I kind of sing along when I'm in the car by myself. And he picked it up and he got it. A lot of what makes people human is what we don't want included. They don't want included in their stories. And I want the interviews to include that. And the only way I could do it is by saying, the ground rules are no editing, let's get in. Mm -hmm. And then- with writing, I think the risk is that it's a lot easier to delete these little snippets of humanity because they may feel like like fluff in your book. And that was a problem. I think that I needed editors to tell me, Andrew, add more color. And I struggled to put that back in. I was very in, very good about removing fluff. If you see this, the book is clear stories, because I believe in stories being interesting. I believe that if you're going to give me a fact, have the story that gives you the credibility to give me that fact, right? So if I tell you that one way to get somebody to, to reveal themselves is give a dramatic low ball, it's just an interesting point that no one's going to remember. But if I show you a snippet of my transcript where this woman would not give me her revenue and I say, what did you do? Did you make a million dollars? And I know that a million dollars is insultingly low for her. And she jumps back in and goes, no, we did 20, 30 times that. And I get my number. If I tell you that's how a dramatic low ball works, now you've seen it in action. So you know I have the credibility to tell you. You see the example. So you see how it works. You understand the nuance of it. It's not going to, I'm not going to say, what was it? Did you get less than a million dollars? And then she's going to go, no, here are my finances and give me the exact number, right? You get a sense of it. And so I wanted the stories, but I also wanted them to be short, quick, punchy so that you enjoy reading them and get the point fast. And I thought that was really important. Editing, editing to that was helpful. What I needed help with afterwards, and truthfully, I don't think I got enough of it, was I needed help coming back and bringing a little color into it. Something like saying, I'm sitting and facing this woman who from the child, she, I could see it because her brows were furrowed. I could see that she was a serious person who from the time, I don't, I don't even know how to do it now to give you an example. It's challenging. I did, I did have this one example in the book where I talked about Scotch night and how I, I use one of my techniques at Scotch night and someone used it on me. 
And an editor said to me, Andrew, can you just give us color? Where is Scotch Knight? Tell us the chairs you were sitting on. Tell us that they're high bar stool chairs, that this was in a corner of your office, that it had this elegance and vibe that made it feel comfortable for people to sit and have scotch because there was no one around. And I struggled with that. But editing was easy and fun and pleasurable. Adding back the color was challenging. And I didn't, I don't think I did it as well as I would have liked to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand. So you've got these stories and stop asking questions. And there are a lot of stories, but you don't have the scenes. You, you just tell exactly what happens, but there is not a lot of background information. So you can really imagine how it's going on, where you're sitting and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't naturally pay attention to stuff like that in real life. I am the person who my wife will say, hasn't been nice having flowers in the house. I go, we have flowers in the house. He goes, yeah, these flowers have been here for a week. They're now starting to wilt. I go, no, I had no idea. Um, yeah, that's, that's a challenge. Yeah. I would get into fights over that. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it helps when, when I read a book, like Malcolm Gladwell does this really well, when they give you a, a sense of how the person they're talking to has their shirt, partially untucked and the back of their hair is sticking up because they didn't notice that they didn't brush it well. You get a sense of them. Actually, I'll give you a really good example of, of, uh, of that. There was this Fortune article about uh, Charlie Rose, an interviewer that I really admired. I, I was paying for his interviews for years because I wanted to hear and study his approach. Um, he's a guy who would interview heads of state and then actors and just random technical people. And it was fa- fascinating. And the article talked about how his cufflinks are often undone on the show because he, he does his research up until the last minute and he doesn't pay attention enough to the way that he dresses and looks on camera. That little touch stayed with me in my, in my mind and it, it gave him a little bit more personality and helped me understand how he, he works in the world. I'd like to have included more of that and I wanna be more aware of those things. And I try in my interviews to do that. I don't do it great, but I try to do that. I try to ask Sahil Lavinia why he, as the creator of Gumroad, which is such a beautiful piece of software for selling digital products online, if every bit of it is beautiful, like if you hit the payment, the credit card payment button, a, a card almost flies down from the top of your screen to the center of your screen, asking you for your credit card information. When it's time for you to add the, what is it called? The CVV, the three digit number from the back. When you enter that field, the little image of a card flips over to the back. So you see that you need to flip your card over to the back. Subtle, but effective. And then if you hit the cancel, cause you don't want to do it, the card uh, where you're supposed to enter your credit card information just drops down to the bottom of your screen. Beautiful details. I said, every time I've seen you've worn flip-flops that just don't fit well. You always have like this white t-shirt that looks like it came out of a Hanes package last, last year. You don't look like you're a stylish person. Why is it that you, that you're not, but it comes across so much in your, in your product. And I got a sense of how the person, I think I was able to communicate to the audience how he is not someone who cares about the physical world as much as he cares about the creations that he makes in the physical world. Um, Today, you might say that he's more like into the metaverse than into the universe, but whether whether I would say it that way or any other way, I think we got a sense of the person because I pointed out the way he was dressed. And I I try to do that in the interviews. I don't do well enough as a writer. Yeah, yeah, so adding a little bit of color is difficult. And apart from this, what was, and again, I'm asking a most type of question, um, but what was the most difficult part of writing your book? Um, so the reason that you keep saying asking a most question is it's something that I've said in the book that I don't recommend interviewers do. I should, I should explain that. I think what happens is people start to spin their wheels thinking about what is number one, what is number one and evaluating every single one. And then, Mm -hmm. so it's, it's a challenging question that then ends up with a lot of, a lot of guest thinking instead of, instead of the answer that we're looking for. Um, And so now that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to think about what the most difficult part of, I don't know what the most difficult part of it was. Yeah. Maybe I should reformulate. Maybe I just just say what's something else you struggled with. There was a period where 
I found myself sacrificing almost everything else in my life for this. I was doing interviews, but nothing else. I ignored email that came in just so I could spend time writing. I ignored like paying attention to, to the income statement and expenses of my company because I was writing. And meanwhile, I would end up with like three paragraphs of work for the whole day that I sacrificed everything else for. And at some point I said, wait, I'm running a business and doing this. This sucks. And I got so angry. I started looking for a ghostwriter. I emailed Ryan holiday, the author of um, so many, so many books on, on writing, but the one that really moved me was perennial seller. And I known him over the years because he'd introduced me to interviewees and he'd been an interview guest on my show. And so I got to know him we'd gone for runs here in Austin or one run. Um, and I felt close enough to tell him I am sacrificing too much of my life. How do I get out of it? Thinking that he would say, I've got a great ghostwriter for you who could help guide you. Instead, he gave me like the most brutal response, which was, did you read my book? And I did read his book and I'm a highlighter. So I went back and I said, is this what you meant? And I showed him the sections that I highlighted of perennial seller about things like George Lucas pulling out his eyebrows um, while he was writing Star Wars and other examples of writers who suffered to write. And, and he said, he gave me one word answer. I think it was just, mm -hmm, which is like, I'm not even a word answer for a writer to just do MMHMM in an email. But I understood his point. He was like, you're suffering and this is part of it. And and so I remember at the time I did find a ghostwriter. I didn't like what she, I didn't love what she did. Actually, I think it would have been fine, but I loved my own writing. I loved that it captured and froze what I learned over the years. And then coupled with him saying, this is the way, I guess his other book title is the obstacle is the way. And I thought I'm going to be so much prouder of this book if I suffer through this and I put my real experiences in it. And so I suffered through it. And that was a difficult moment for me, sacrificing so much for what seemed like so little, like a whole paragraph. And you know what? Sometimes I'd write the paragraph, I'd show it to Mary the next day and she'd say, now that I see it, we shouldn't have gone down this path. Let's delete it. That's a whole day. At any point, did you consider... Let's not delete it. Let's just keep it at the bottom. We can use this for promotion elsewhere. I didn't because it was getting to be too much. I think at some point I created like a graveyard with things that I deleted that I could use somewhere else, or mm -hmm. I'd spent so much time writing this section. It stinks to, to get rid of it. Let's just save it in case I was wrong this week. I thought, screw it. It's going to add too much. Just focus on the writing, not add more complexity. And if I absolutely need anything, Google Docs will let me go back in time and get it. And so I did it and it wasn't really the ideal, but I did it and that's where I was. Um, and truthfully, I don't regret it. There's not like a section that I think, oh, if I only had that, I can do something. Eh, it's fine. So at some point you almost gave up. I did. And you almost gave up with episode eight of Mixergy. Did you get any flashbacks while writing the book? Um, Yes, in both places, I kind of knew that I'd crossed the Rubicon, that I'd done the thing that you can't go back and undo. And so more with the book than anything else, I said, I'd already gotten far enough. I'm going to finish this one way or the other. The big question was, am I going to get a ghostwriter and guide the ghostwriter and then go back to my life? Or am I going to keep suffering through it? And I decided to keep suffering through it. All right. Um, I just noticed your coffee addiction. Now I switched to tea. Oh, you switched to tea. Yes. Because I saw that's for the fifth cup already since we started. I do love it. I, I love having hot drinks. If you ever go to my parents' house, you'll see they, they're so obsessive with their tea. They're not big coffee drinkers. They have like an old Middle Eastern approach to tea where they'll have like a really concentrated pot going with just tea leaves and a little bit of water and then also hot water going. So the idea is that at any point in the day, you can, you can make tea to the strength that you feel you want. And it's kind of cool. I like it. I've gone to other people's homes and I've seen it and it feels like familiar and it makes my parents feel less odd, mm -hmm. but I dig it. The only other culture that I've seen that does something similar to that is in Argentina. 
they drink yerba mate, not tea, you know, right? Yeah. And one of the things that I learned about yerba mate is if you do it right, and um, a few people showed me how to do it right because I got obsessive with it. Mm-hmm. You layer the yerba mate almost like like a half pyramid so that it goes down in a slope in your cup. So it's, you've got these leaves of yerba mate that are dried. You put them in a, in a cup, that, um, which they call the mate. And then you put a straw in that lets you drink whatever water you put in there, but it's, it filters out the leaves and you add some hot water into it. The hot water seeps in the yerba mate and then you drink it. And if you do it right, because you've layered it in kind of this slope, you can decide how much of the yerba mate gets into the hot water and you decide how strong and how weak it is. And it's such a good way to drink. When we drink coffee, we don't get that. One of the things that I think that coffee snobs miss is the ability to say this sip or this next five sips, I want to be really strong, but the next ones after that, I can go a little bit milder and take my time with it, you know? Mm -hmm. And instead what you get with even the biggest coffee snobs, they have a whole cup of coffee that has the same strength and I get it. I don't see another way to do it. Yerba mate drinkers and tea drinkers like my parents have a much better experience. When I sat down with a yerba mate, my first five sips might've been strong because I was just getting up and I needed something to get going. But after that, I could have just milder bits of caffeine, milder flavor, and just let it go. And then if I feel like I need a bit of a jolt, I can add a little more hot water to a section of the, of the yerba mate leaves that were still dry so that I can get more energy. It's a hard thing to explain, but it's huge. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I fully understand. It's business idea. Maybe someone's listening. I wonder how you would do that for coffee. I wonder if there's a way to do coffee that way, where just like your mate, you get to decide how, how strong or weak your coffee is. That's actually a really interesting question. Yeah. But something for another time, because I'd love to hear some writing advice from you. If you had to give three tips to an aspiring author, what would you tell them? I'll tell you my approach. I don't know that I could ever speak to anyone else, but I'll tell you that for me, the big thing was to not do it alone. And so I thought of writing as being the thing that you do when you go off into a cabin in the woods and you write. And I've had friends who've done that. They go to a cabin in the woods, in the middle of nowhere, and they sit and write. I don't work well that way. For me, it helped to have somebody hold me accountable every week, check in with me. Every day, if I was sitting and writing, I knew that I would get up and go and eat or I would get up and go and do something else or I would check Twitter. And so I needed somebody to also kind of keep an eye on me there. And what I did for that was I used a service called Focusmate where you sign in and then they pair you up with a stranger who also wants to focus and you could share your screen so they could see what you're doing and you could see what they're doing and make sure that you're not like getting off task. Mm -hmm. And having that human being there to keep me accountable was tremendously helpful. And then the final part of this threesome uh, is to say, I need to go to the audience from time to time. Initially, it was going to be, I'm going to write and publish, but I realized I, I couldn't handle that kind of in, I couldn't handle that kind of involvement with the audience. I needed to be a little bit more, more separated, but I could every few weeks say who has a problem that I can help with for free on zoom and get in and help them. And then remember the problems that go along with the solution that I'm offering with the book. And I got a bunch of interviewers, a bunch of podcasters, just people who wanted to have better conversations, reach out to me. I'd answer their questions. And then I'd, I'd use the stories and the questions and the problems they brought up in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's an interesting approach. Um, and maybe something a little bit similar here. If you were interviewing yourself about your book, what would you ask yourself? The interview that I would do about the book would be to say, who's my audience? Maybe the audience is just me. Um, What are the problems that are important to solve? And then how did the book address them? And I would almost ask the author to sum up chapters of his book that explain how the problem that I'm bringing up would be solved. And so it would just be, I have these 10 problems as an interviewer, or I know my audience has these 10 problems as conversationalists. Andrew wrote answers to those. I'm going to read his book. I'm going to pull out those 10. I'm going to write a note about each story that he tells, and then I'm going to tee it up, have him tell the story that solves the problem so that the audience gets it. 
And then I'm going to challenge him and say, yeah, but when I do it, here's the problem I have. Or when my audience does it, here's a thing that they brought up that, that they're challenged by. How do you address that? And then what I end up getting is basically an hour that's a book summary with the best parts of the book for my audience, like customized for our needs with specific stories and examples. I leave out all the empty stuff that people tend to add to their books because they feel they need to hit a word count or a page count and all the stuff that's not related to my audience. And I end up having a really good engaging book summary that relates directly to my audience and my needs and is told well. And then if they like it, then they end up going out and buying the book and sometimes they become like fanatics of the author. And, uh, and, and that's the approach that I would take with me. Mm -hmm. All right. Interesting. Is there anything else that you think I should have asked during this interview? Um, I think the big thing that people wonder is, is interviewing just for podcasters like you, Andrew? Is interviewing just for people who want to do this professionally? And the, the reason I started the book out with the story of me going and talking to Ace Greenberg, the guy who ran... The, the investment bank that I worked for as an intern in college. And he sat down with me and he let me ask him anything and I blew it and I didn't learn jack from him. And I started the book with that because I wanted everyone to realize that that's the problem that we're all facing. We get to meet these incredible people today. Maybe we work for them, maybe they're our clients, maybe they're just people that we meet at a dinner party and we get to ask them anything. And we blow it. We end up with empty conversations that are not useful. When I talk to entrepreneurs who do amazing things, one of the things they tell me is they know how to extract information from people they admire who've done the things they're trying to do. A great example is Ari, the founder of Artlist, who I happened to interview yesterday. He built a business that makes a... Um, royalty-free music and video and related content for creators available on a subscription basis. He built that to tens of millions of dollars. And he's not a business person. He's a filmmaker. And he did it. And I asked him, how do you do it? And he kept telling me names of people who he turned to, like near the president of Wix, the, the uh, web publishing company, that he would turn to and say, I'm trying to learn how to do this thing. How did you do it? How would you solve my problem? And he knew how to extract information from them. And that's how he was able to build his business to that size, even though he wasn't an entrepreneur at heart and a business person at heart. And the problem is most people don't know how to do that. We just don't learn how to do it. We don't value it. It's never been a thing that anyone spent time on. We learn how to read from books. We learn how to I learn now from YouTube videos, from school. We don't know how to learn from other people one-on-one. -on -one. And that is such a magical, powerful thing that I wish everybody would learn how to do. And if you do it, I think that you end up with tighter relationships with people. And I know that you end up with better learning uh, and better, more, more uh, customized understanding of what you're trying to achieve. So um, final question then. Of course, I kind of think I know the answer to this question. And it's one I ask at the end of every interview, do you have a secret? And I think your, the secret to your success, I'm, I'm just answering it for you now, is how you extract information from people, like you just said. But it, maybe is there anything else that do you think that makes you exceptional at what you do? One of the things that I did was put in this book all the secrets that I have for conversation. Like there was one that people had seen, but I don't think most people realized. Like I would ask, if I want to ask a personal question, I'd say, um, do you feel comfortable talking about how you and your wife broke up? And people would see that suddenly we were getting in a conversation with a stranger who told us about how he and his wife broke up. And it was like, how does Andrew do it? And now I revealed it in the book. And now people see it in conversations with me and they say, oh, I saw that it's in your book and I get it. And I knew that that was going to come up and I knew that that was going to be a danger. And I intentionally said, I want that. I want it to be that kind of good where I'm not holding back the best stuff. I've interviewed authors over the years and the ones who have these crappy, like gimmicky lead magnety books are the ones who don't reveal the depth, the secrets, the painful stuff that they know almost ruins their mojo because what they're trying to do is promote themselves instead of help promote the person who's reading. And I intentionally decided I'm not going to do it, even if it means that everyone sees and how I'm doing things. Some people copy it. Other people might call me a manipulator for doing it. I wanted that out there on the page and it's there. All right. Perfect. Thank you. Do you have any useful links for aspiring authors? 
useful links for aspiring authors. Yes, I highly recommend that you work with someone else instead of working on your own. I'd suggest a couple of different things. One is use Focusmate. It's free. I see a lot of students use it um, and now more and more developers and entrepreneurs use it when they want to stay focused. The other thing I would say is I've found that if I can't do something, I will even go to Fiverr and get a coach. And you can often find people who are really inexpensive and you say, okay, if they're only $5 an hour, or I, I've worked with chess coaches that are only $10 an hour, you go, what's the point of it? They're not the best in their business. It's okay. Just having another human being there to kind of co-work with you is helpful to check in on you, to just give you some guidance. Even if you say, no, that's stupid. That's not my answer. And you come up with your own, it's better than just going through it in your head. And I think a lot of times we think we have to do this thing ourselves. And in reality, we do it much better with someone else. And that's the one thing that I'd leave people with. Go look for Fiverr for coaches. Even if they're not going to be the best coaches in the world, go look for focus made for someone to hold you accountable. Even if they're not someone that you know, Look for that other human being who's going to be there and be a presence and help you move forward. Brilliant. Any personal links you want to share with the audience? If anyone wants to see my interview style, they should go to Mixergy, M-I-X-E-R-G-Y. You can do it in your favorite podcast app. And if you care about having better conversations, go to Amazon or any bookstore and get Stop Asking Questions. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening to the Coffee and Pens podcast. Don't forget to check Stop Asking Questions to get better conversations. And have a look at Damn Gravity if you're looking for someone to help distribute your book. Follow Coffee and Pens on Twitter at Coffee Pens for regular updates and on Instagram at Coffee underscore Pens for visual breakdowns and short clips of the interviews. And remember, you can always check www.coffeeandpens.com for podcast summaries, show notes, and useful resources. Don't forget to subscribe and enjoy the rest of your day.